In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Bible teacher and author Kent Hughes tells the following fascinating story. He writes, during World War II battles in the Pacific, a sailor in the United States submarine was stricken with acute appendicitis and was near death. The nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. The sailor's friend, pharmacist, mate Weller Lipes, watched his temperature rise to 106 degrees. The man's only hope was an operation. So Lipes said to his stricken buddy, he said, I have watched doctors do this operation. I think I can do it. What do you say? The sailor consented. In the wardroom, the patient was stretched out on a table beneath the floodlight. The mate and assisting officers dressed in reversed pajama tops masked their faces with gauze. The crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The cook boiled water for sterilizing. A tea strainer served as an antiseptic cone. A broken-handled scalpel was the operating instrument. Alcohol drained from the torpedoes was the antiseptic. Bent tablespoons kept the muscles open. After cutting through the layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two and a half hours later, the last catgut stitch was sewn just as the last drop of ether gave out. Thirteen days later, the sailor was back at work. It was a greater accomplishment, greater than the appendectomies done by surgeons, not because it was better, for it was not, but because an unskilled shipmate performed the surgery. And so having told this story in his commentary, Ken Hughes then makes the following statement in order to explain how this story relates to biblical truth. So he writes, this story helps us understand a puzzling promise that Jesus made to his disciples shortly before he left the earth. He said in the upper room, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Thus, Ken Hughes says, the apostles, the church, and we Christians today can do greater works than Jesus, not because they're greater works, but because of who we are, frail, sinful human instruments empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that thought then, folks, brings us to our study today in Luke's Gospel, because at the beginning of chapter 9, a new chapter for us, I encourage you to turn there, we read about the time that Jesus sent his 12 apostles, men who were frail, common, ordinary, sinful human instruments, out on a short-term missions trip that involved doing the miraculous work of casting out demons and healing diseases as well as preaching the gospel. Here's what we read in Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, these verses constitute our Lord's instructions to his 12 apostles just before sending them out on their first taste of missionary work. 
having recently chosen them as his apostles, Jesus is now ready to get them involved in the actual work of the ministry by sending them out on a short-term missions trip all around the region of Galilee. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for quite a while, and it may never have dawned upon you that everything that Jesus did, he did by himself. Up to this point, he hasn't included any of his disciples in his work. And he had chosen 12 apostles. He's about to send them out, and that's what this is about. Now, contrary to what many people today think, the 12 men that Jesus chose to be his apostles were not impressive individuals, not at all. Though down through the centuries, they've often been exalted. They've been looked upon as men of superior quality. The truth of the matter is that they were very ordinary men with some huge spiritual defects and flaws. John MacArthur in his book about the apostles called, the book is called 12 Ordinary Men, wrote this about them. He said, not one of them was renowned for scholarship. They had no track record as orators or theologians. They were not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. On the contrary, they were all too prone to mistakes misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, and bitter failure. Jesus remarked that they were slow learners and somewhat spiritually dense. Kind of an understatement. They were really spiritually dense. So far from being an impressive group of super-duper saints, and we're talking about them prior to the Holy Spirit coming upon them, but far from being an an impressive group of super-duper saints, the 12 men that Jesus chose to, to train in order to take the gospel out into the, the world, they were quite average. They were not professional theologians. They were rather common men from the cross-section of Jewish society. Several of them were professional fishermen. One was a former political activist. One had been a hated tax collector working for the despised Roman government. And the rest of them, we have just so little information about them that we assume that they must have been common craftsmen or perhaps farmers. And because they were such ordinary men and had sinful hearts just like ours, they all had these glaring faults and character problems. I often refer to these men as the defective dozen because that's what they were. There were 12 guys with obvious character flaws and defects who could be quite thick and slow when it came to understanding and obeying the things that Jesus was saying. So, for example, Peter. Peter, who is considered the best of these men and the unofficial leader of the apostles, really had no clue as to what was going on until after Christ's resurrection. For instance, in John chapter 13, he exhibits incredible pride by refusing to have Jesus wash his feet. And listen, he's, he does this, he announces this right in the midst of the Lord giving an object lesson on humility. Talk about missing the point of the sermon, this is it. On another occasion in Matthew 16, after Jesus explains to all the apostles that he has to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and die there, Peter has the audacity to take the Lord aside and actually rebuke him for talking about his death as if he knew better than the Lord. And it was Peter who, though he arrogantly boasted that he was better than the other apostles and he would never, ever deny Jesus, he did deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. 
And after Christ's death, according to John chapter 21, Peter walked away from the ministry. He returned. He went back to his old job of being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had to restore him to the work of being an apostle by asking him three times, because he denied him three times, do you love me? And then telling Peter, if you love me, then feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, I called you to shepherd men, not fish on the Sea of Galilee. So if Peter, being the best of the apostles, had some serious defects in his character, being rash, being nervy, proud, unthinking, and on and on it goes, then what about the worst of the apostles? And who might that be? Well, the worst of them was Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Judas wasn't even a true believer. He was satanic. He was a crook who stole money that belonged to the ministry. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and then he took his own life. Concerning Judas, Jesus said that it would have been better had he never been born because his torment in hell will be so severe based on the fact of how much he knew about Christ and rejected the truth. Now, between the best apostle, Peter, and the worst apostle, Judas, then you have a group of men who were often guilty of petty jealousy as they constantly argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom. They displayed prejudice, hostility towards Samaritans in wanting to call down fire from heaven to destroy them, great missionary spirit. They were lacking in faith, often being worried and fearful, even though they had observed all of Christ's miraculous displays of power so that on a number of occasions, Jesus said to them, you are men of little faith. And on several occasions, they showed an amazing lack of understanding of Christ's teaching. For example, when Jesus spoke in parables, they often asked him to explain the meanings of them because they just didn't get it. Like the unsaved people all around them, they didn't know what he was talking about. And there were lots of things that they just did not get. In fact, someone said that these men were so dense that they didn't even understand that they failed to understand. I mean, that's dense. When you don't even know that you don't know. In addition, they were lacking in personal devotion to Christ, which became very evident after he was arrested because even though they said, oh, we'll never forsake you, Lord, Every one of them fled when the soldiers arrested Jesus. And yet, and it's a big and yet, and yet with all of their character flaws, all of their glaring inadequacies, Luke tells us here at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus specifically chose these 12 men to be his representatives, to share in his ministry, and to eventually turn the world upside down by spreading the gospel. And what's so amazing about this is that before he chose them, he knew all of their faults. He knew all of their weaknesses, all of their character defects. He knew everything about them, and yet he still selected them out of all of his followers. And listen, there must have been many followers by this time, but he chose these 12 men to be his apostles. And folks, that, that truth ought to greatly encourage every one of us because what it tells us is that even with our faults, even with our inadequacies, our defects, Jesus can and still does use us. By using men like the apostles, we learn that Christ uses common, ordinary individuals. And the reason he does it this way is found in Paul's words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 
verse 7. Paul said this, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul is telling us that all of us, all who know Christ, are just common earthen vessels. We're like jars of clay, cracked jars of clay. But God places the treasure of the gospel in these cracked jars of clay. Us. So that everyone can see that the power to transform and to save lives is from God, not from us at all. Not from us. You see, Jesus uses weak inadequate people like us so that he and he alone receives the glory. In fact, there really ought to be no other explanation for your usefulness to the Lord other than the simple truth that the Lord uses weak and inadequate people to show forth his strength and adequacy. Any other explanation about our usefulness, anything that exalts us and stems from our Sinful pride is just wrong because we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we really should. Now, based on our previous studies in Luke's gospel, we know that up to this point in our Lord's ministry, he ministered alone. You may not have thought about that, but I reminded you of this, mentioned this to you a few minutes ago. He ministered alone. Though there were many in Israel at this point who had become followers of Jesus, he had asked none of them to participate in his ministry. He did everything himself. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He taught. He cast out demons. He healed those who were sick and diseased. And although his disciples were there and they followed him around, they only observed. They observed his miracles. They listened to his teaching. They had private interaction with him. But they were not involved in the actual work of the ministry. He did it all alone. But with these opening verses of Luke chapter 9, we see a definite change, a definite shift in Christ's ministry. He now begins to give the apostles their first taste of ministry by sending them out on a brief missionary endeavor. And there's a good reason why he chose to do this at this particular time. However, it's not Luke who tells us the reason. Luke doesn't. But it's Matthew in his gospel narrative, who gives us insight as to why Jesus decided it was time for the apostles to get their feet wet in ministry. So here's what Matthew tells us. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, what Matthew tells us in these verses is having traveled all over Galilee, Jesus was just heartbroken over what he saw, seeing the people there because He saw them as bruised and battered sheep since they had no loving shepherd to care for them, to protect them from the burdensome man-made religious traditions inflicted upon them by their scribes and Pharisees. The religious leaders of Israel who should have been loving and kind and shepherding the people were actually harming them by spiritually abusing them. 
And so Jesus turned to those who were with him, the many who had become his disciples and traveling companions, and he told them specifically to pray to the Father to send forth workers to minister to all these hurting sheep, all these hurting people. In other words, they were to pray for God to raise up caring shepherds who would now join him in ministering to these bruised and bleeding and battered Jewish sheep. And that's why Luke chapter 9 begins by telling us that Jesus gathered the 12, meaning the 12 men he had chosen to be his apostles, in order to send them out on a ministry assignment. See, folks, what we're being told here is that in answer to the prayers of his many disciples, Jesus brought them, the 12 together, in order for them to join him in shepherding these lost, hurting sheep of Israel. This is the answer to their prayers. And he's sending the 12 out. Now, something that might be of great help at this point is an understanding of the difference between a disciple and an apostle. We use these terms, but what are we talking about? Well, the word disciple simply means a learner, a student, a a pupil. And in this sense, then, all true believers in Christ are his disciples. You can't be a Christian and not a disciple. During his earthly ministry, there were many in Israel who attached themselves to Jesus in a student-to-teacher relationship. He was a rabbi, and they were his disciples as they followed him around, listening to him as they walked alongside of him, learning from him, observing what he did. That was a disciple. But while all of Christ's followers were considered disciples, only a few of them, 12 to be exact, were chosen to be his apostles. So what does the word apostle mean? Well, the word apostle literally means someone who is sent out. It means a messenger. And there is a sense in which we can say that all missionaries and full-time vocational Christian workers have been sent out by the Lord. However, when the Bible refers to the 12 apostles, it is always a reference, not simply to those who are called to witness for him, like all of us in that sense, but it is a reference rather to those who are called, who were called back then to be his official ambassadors with full authority to represent him, to act on his behalf and to speak for him. In other words, the 12 apostles were sent out as official, authorized representatives of Jesus Christ. To hear them preach was to hear Christ preach. To be taught doctrine by them was to be taught doctrine by Christ. For them to act concerning matters of the church and the faith was in essence Christ acting through them concerning matters of the church and of the faith. Therefore, the apostles, when acting in the capacity as an apostle, never gave their own messages, but always spoke on behalf of Christ, the one who sent them out, the one who supernaturally guided them so that they proclaimed his precise, not just thoughts, but words in their teaching. This is why the apostles' teaching was, and it continues to be, the standard of truth that we follow today. That's why we read, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, concerning the, the first church, the Jerusalem church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when the apostles wrote letters to these young churches, they always began by identifying themselves as an apostle of Jesus Christ. See, the title, the title of an apostle marked that that man is one who had the right and the full authority to speak and act on behalf of Jesus Christ. That's precisely why Jesus chose these 12 men to be his apostles. See, according to Luke chapter 6, we go back now three chapters to Luke 6, Jesus had already indicated which of his many followers he had chosen to be his 12 apostles. So then, what Luke has recorded for us now three chapters later in chapter 9 took place several months after Jesus first chose these men for apostleship And these are the Lord's instructions to them about their upcoming ministry. So, after doing the work of caring for all of these sheep, all by himself, Jesus is finally ready to include these 12 men in his work. And therefore, he needs to give them specific instructions on their fast approaching missions trip. And that's exactly what this passage of scripture is about. And it's going to take us more than one week to cover this. It is Jesus laying down a number of directives for his apostles to follow as they leave his physical presence for really the first time in order to engage in ministry on their own. And these directives, these instructions were part of Christ's training for these men because he was developing them. He was nurturing them in preparation for the time when they would carry on his ministry after his death, resurrection, and return to glory. Now, although a number of these directives were strictly for the apostles because they apply only to their specific circumstances and the day and age they lived in, I want you to understand All of these directives are relevant for us because they all reveal principles, timeless principles about how Jesus wants us as his followers to minister for him. And you cannot sit there and think, well, I'm not in full-time ministry. I'm not a missionary. If you're a Christian, you're a full-time Christian, which means you do have a ministry. You do something You do something to serve the Lord. You ought to be involved in ministry. Even if it's not an official program of the church, you are involved in ministry. You see, what we're going to discover from these verses are timeless, enduring, eternal principles to guide and govern every one of us as to how we serve the Lord, regardless of what ministry we have As I said, if you're a follower of Christ, then you're called to serve him in some capacity. And these are the principles that you need to have guide you and you need to carry out in your ministry. Now, there are several of these timeless principles for a biblical ministry that Jesus spoke of in these verses, with the first one being this. Number one, those who minister for Christ must have credibility. You might want to write that down. Those who minister for Christ must have credibility credibility. Verse 1 says this, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now, as we will learn when we get to verse 2, Jesus really is sending his apostles out to proclaim the message of his kingdom. That's their primary ministry. But as I said earlier, all these men were rather ordinary and common 
None of them were skilled theologians with any formal rabbinical training. So why should the Jewish people of Galilee listen to them? I mean, who are they? What proof did these men have that they were officially representing Jesus as they told others about his kingdom? Well, the only way they could prove that they were Christ's authorized spokesmen who were proclaiming his message was by performing these miraculous signs that pointed back to Christ and reminded the people of Jesus and the work that he did. Hey, he healed people. He cast out demons. These guys must be his representatives. Otherwise, how could they do this work? That's what gave them credibility. That's precisely why we read that Jesus gave them the authority, which means he gave them the power to do this too, to cast out demons, to heal diseases. See, those types of miracles, as I said, that's what Jesus was doing all over the Galilee. So when the apostles would now do the same things on their missionary ministry, it would give them credibility to prove to everybody they were sent by Jesus. They represented Jesus. They reminded people of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. In fact, years later, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that the power to do these miracles was uniquely given only to the apostles, to no one else. They're given to them as signs that authenticated their ministry. That's why nobody doing these things today, even though there are frauds who say they're doing this, they're not. Listen to what Paul wrote. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. This is what proved to the people that they were true apostles. Listen, if every Christian can do this, this verse makes no sense. The only way they could show that they were an apostle set apart by Christ as an apostle is that they could do things that nobody else could do. So the question is, what about us? Obviously, we're not apostles. God hasn't given us the authority or the empowerment to perform miracles as signs of authenticity. This doesn't mean that God doesn't do miracles. It just means he hasn't given us the gift, the ability to do that. What is it then that authenticates us as valid witnesses and representatives of Jesus Christ? What is it that gives us credibility as ministers of Christ? In other words, in light of all kinds of religious frauds and false teachers who claim to represent Jesus, how can people know today that we're the real deal, that we're the true representatives of Jesus Christ on earth? The answer is simply this. What gives you credibility, what gives you believability is a godly life that supports what you claim to be and what you claim to believe. You see, godly behavior that reflects Christ's character, that's the only way, the only way that the world can objectively evaluate if you're a true representative of Christ. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 13. He said this in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this By this what? By this love. All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's by our love for one another that convinces unbelievers that we're followers of Christ. Why? Because we remind them of Jesus. That's why. Jesus loved his people in a serving, kind, 
incredible manner where he was thoughtful and sensitive and merciful. If we behave like that, even unbelievers will say, well, yeah, I may not believe the gospel, I may not believe in Christ, but I can see that these people are different, that they're like the Jesus in the Bible. And this is why Peter tells Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands that their behavior towards their husband needs to reflect Christ. This is what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 and 2, in the same way, now he's just said that Jesus was submissive to the human authorities in this world. He says in the same way, meaning the same way that Jesus was submissive to the human authority, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, he means they're unbelievers, not that they that they're Christians who aren't obedient. They're unbelievers. They're disobedient to the word. He said, they may be one, meaning one to Christ, without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, this is how a Christian wife can win her non-Christian husband to Christ. Not by constantly nagging him, not by preaching the gospel to him, not by putting Bible verses under his beer cans, but by her respectful and godly submission to him that reflects Christ, that reflects Christ's godliness and his submission to authority. This is why the Apostle Paul told Timothy that elders must be above reproach and to be men of God. This is why Paul listed about 20 qualifications for an elder. They represent Christ. They have to reflect Christ. To live is Christ. You see, folks, the way that we gain credibility with unbelievers is by practicing our faith before a very cynical world. And practically speaking, this means that we have to care more about our testimony than about our personal comforts, our personal conveniences. It means, for example, that we are to be kind to waiters and waitresses even when they give us bad service. It means that we don't have road rage when someone cuts us off in their vehicles. It means that we need to be patient with those who are demanding. We need to be forgiving towards those who sin against us. All of this reflects Christ. Your testimony is more important than anything else. And at times, gaining credibility for the gospel means that we have to give up our so-called rights. Now, we really don't have any rights, but we think we do, so I'm calling them so-called rights. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul said these words. He said, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win some Jewish people to Christ. And to those without God's law, meaning Gentiles, he says that I became like them that I might win some Gentiles to Christ. Now, what Paul means by this is that there were times when he gave up his right to eat all kinds of food. He did this as he was with Jewish people. He decided, even though Paul had the freedom to eat whatever he wanted, he decided with Jewish people, he would only eat kosher food, Mosaic law approved food, clean animals according to the the law. Not because he didn't like the other stuff, but because of his witness to unsaved Jewish people. He didn't want to offend them. He didn't want to insult them. He didn't want to distract from the gospel message. So Paul chose to give up his freedom to eat anything he wanted. And there were times when being entertained by Gentiles that Paul made sure that he ate food that they ate, even though 
as a Jewish person, he grew up as a, a Pharisee in a kosher home. These other foods probably did not appeal to him, and yet he would eat them. And some of this food had been previously sacrificed to pagan idols. But to Paul, it didn't matter. He wasn't going to insult any Gentiles. He gave up his right to eat whatever he wanted to eat. Listen, in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says that he even gave up his right to take any monetary payment for his ministry labors. Because in the early days of Christianity, this might have been misunderstood as something that a false teacher would do. That's what they often did. A religious huckster, a con artist would do. He was in it for the money. And therefore, Paul refused to ask for money for his ministry because he thought it might discredit the gospel. Now, there were some churches that sent money to Paul, but he never asked for money. In fact, that's why Paul worked as a tent maker, so as not to discredit the gospel. Paul gave it up. He gave up his right to ask for money for ministry. Folks, listen, just like Paul, there will be times when you and I will need to refrain from doing certain things that in and of themselves, they're not sinful, but they might be misunderstood as sinful behavior so that they would discredit our testimony. You see, in ministry, perception is just as important as reality. If you unintentionally give people the impression that your behavior is sinful, even if it's not, then you can lose all credibility as a representative of Christ. And there is nothing more important than having a good testimony. A good name is to be desired more than riches, Proverbs says. So, think about your life. Do you have credibility with unbelievers? When they look at you, do they see Christ Paul said, for me to live is Christ. That ought to be the slogan of our lives. We live Christ before an unsaved world. So the first timeless principle that Jesus gives for how to have a biblical ministry is the principle of credibility. Those who minister for him must have credibility. But as the Lord continues giving his apostles directives for their upcoming missions trip, we see that he reveals a second timeless principle for a biblical ministry. And that principle is that those who minister for him must proclaim him as Lord and King. Verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now with these words, Jesus is instructing his apostles as to what their mission was really all about. Although, yes, he would give them supernatural power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, their real mission, their real ministry was to proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, they were to be his heralds, his spokesmen, his voice, telling others about specifically his kingdom. And specifically what they were to tell others about concerning his kingdom is spelled out in Matthew's account of this very same passage, where we read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, and as you go preach, saying, here was their message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he's instructing them that as they travel all around the Galilee area, various villages, towns, the message that they were to give to the people is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the same message that John the Baptist preached, same message that Jesus himself preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Meaning what? When we read the words, is at hand, it means it's here. It's arrived. It's not coming in the future. It's arrived. And the reason they could tell the Jewish people of Galilee this is because their king had arrived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And by believing this, they could be a part of his kingdom. See, while the Bible teaches that there are a number of different features, different facets, aspects involving the concept of the kingdom of God, such as there will be a future kingdom of Messiah on earth, so that we are instructed to pray, thy kingdom come, that command doesn't make any sense if there's no future kingdom, thy kingdom come, So there will be a future aspect. However, the message here that the apostles were to proclaim wasn't about a future millennial kingdom on earth, but rather it was about the present form of God's kingdom, meaning his sovereign rule and reign over the hearts of men had come. It had come now. It was here now. Why? Because Jesus the king had arrived. And more than simply tell people of the arrival of their Messiah king, These men were mandated, note this, to tell others how to enter his kingdom. Notice what we read in Mark's gospel accounts of the same passage. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent. They went out and preached that men should repent. Now, what we discover from these words that in instructing his apostles to preach about his kingdom arriving, Jesus told them, it's not recorded for us in Luke, but he told them to proclaim that the way to enter his kingdom was by repentance, which is forsaking of sin and submitting to him as their king. Listen, the heart of the message that we've been called to preach is basically no different from the message of the kingdom that Jesus told his disciples to preach. Now, of course, we live on this side of the cross so that we need to explain the meaning of Christ's death on the cross when we speak to others about him. The apostles at that point didn't know that. But the heart of the gospel is always to call sinners to repentance and faith in Christ, which involves which involves placing themselves under his sovereign kingly rule. In other words, submitting to him as Lord and King. That's not separate from the gospel. And that's critically important to understand this because one of the key elements of the gospel that's often ignored in contemporary evangelism is this element of submission and obedience to Christ as King and Lord of our lives. That's not separate from saving faith. That's not work salvation. That's a part, that attitude is a part of genuine saving faith. See, in our zeal to emphasize that Christ is the Savior to be trusted, we can easily neglect to emphasize he's also the king to be obeyed. It's all part of the same message. And yet, the message that the apostles preached, sometimes we we lose sight of this. I want you to understand, when the apostles preached, they always called people to obedience to Christ. And you may say, what evidence do you have for that? Well, let me show you. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received, Paul said, grace and apostleship to bring about, note this, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul said, when I preach the gospel, It was for the end result of bringing about obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. They were to obey. They were to repent of their sin, place their trust in Christ with an attitude of he's our Lord. 
I want to obey him. Romans chapter 16, verses 25, 26, as Paul is winding down this long letter, he says, Now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, watch this, leading to obedience of faith. Paul said, what we proclaim leads to obedience of faith. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. This is fascinating. In the early days of the church, the word of God kept spreading and a number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You had Jewish priests who people were witnessing to and they were believing on Christ which Luke here calls obedience to the faith. So if we're going to minister the gospel as Christ wants it to be ministered then we need to remember we're not simply giving out gospel information. We're not simply giving out facts about Jesus but we're calling individuals to submit to him as a king who reigns over a kingdom of loyal followers. Now, it's true, we grow in our submission to Christ. We grow in our understanding of his lordship. We grow in our understanding of obedience to him. But you can't come to Christ, and we should never call people to come to Christ and say, just pray this prayer and you're in. We tell people about Christ dying on the cross for sinners. And once we explain the meaning of that, Then we call people to turn from their sin, and they know what sin they're in, and turn to Christ, trusting Him with a heart's attitude that says, basically, I've been Lord of my life all of these years, and I've messed it up, and I'm now trusting Christ as my Savior with an attitude that He's my Lord. I want to obey Him. Even where I blow it at times, I still have a heart to obey Him. I want Him as my Lord. And so, folks, the first two timeless principles that Jesus gives for how to have a biblical ministry are the principles. Number one, those who minister for him must have credibility. And number two, those who minister for him must proclaim him as Lord and King. And as Jesus continues instructing his apostles, we see a third timeless truth for how to have a biblical ministry. And for that, you'll have to come back next week. Because... In the first service, which has to be just what the second service is, I did what every quarterback does in football. I made an audible at the line of scrimmage. I looked at the clock, which I have in front of me, and I realized I had pages and pages of notes that we won't have time today to cover. But what we've covered today is enough. It's enough for you to make certain decisions in your life as to how to live. You are to have credibility before unbelievers. So you have to ask yourself, you have to ask the Lord, what changes do I need to make? How do I need to live before an unbelieving world? What adjustments do I need to make? Do I complain? Do I not treat waiters and waitresses particularly well? Do I not tip them well? Do I get annoyed at people on the road? Am I demanding? Am I insensitive? Am I harsh in my language to others? You have to reflect Christ. Your life has to be Christ being lived through you. And that means you have to repent of sin. All of us have to do that. Not simply when we come to the Lord's Supper. 
This is a daily, moment-by-moment moment situation. And we also have to make sure that when we tell others about Jesus, in our zeal to have them pray with us to receive Christ, that we don't bypass this great truth that coming to Christ is coming to a king that you're submitting to. Don't pick fruit that's not ripe. They're not ready yet. Make sure that you proclaim the kingdom, the gospel, because Christ is king. If you don't know him as your king, as your savior, then I urge you to do that. As I said earlier, you know what sin you're involved in that you need to repent of, the attitude of self-centeredness. You know that. If you're willing to repent of that, forsake that, and place your trust in Christ alone for your salvation with an attitude that no longer will you be Lord of your life, but he will, then God will accept you into his kingdom. If you want to speak to any of our pastors about this, I invite you to come up after the service. Just see me. A few of us will be up here and we'll be happy to talk to you. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for what we've been able to study today, Lord. I pray for each one who knows you, Lord, that they will take to heart the truth about having some credibility before an unbelieving world, a world, Lord, that tries to justify it's unbelief by looking at Christians and saying they don't want to be a hypocrite like we are, Lord. May we not give them any stuff for them to pull that. May we live Christ before them. May we be gracious and gentle and loving in the details of life. May our testimony be more important than our comforts, than our conveniences. May you convict us of griping and complaining and, and being angry and, and being stingy and, and all the other things, Lord, that just don't reflect you. We pray also that you'll help us to, when we do speak to people about you, to never compromise the truth. You are, you are a king, not only a savior. We thank you that you are our savior, but you are Lord. And we pray that we will present you as such to others. We do pray for anyone here or watching live stream who has never trusted Christ, we pray that you'll draw them to yourself that today might be the day of salvation. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.